doubt it was for me and I think possibly for everybody that has interest in, uh, in hockey, the most emotional awards ceremony that I have ever watched. And um, it was that because of the way that they remembered the victims and survivors of the Humboldt Broncos uh, bus, bus crash tragedy. So they did this incredibly emotional uh, tribute to the team uh, and then finally to their coach. Before giving him the first ever Willie Ray Community Hero Award. The award was presented to his wife who made a speech about the life and values and love and commitment of her husband. The whole thing, that emotional part, uh, that tribute and, and the presentation took probably 20 minutes and like I said it was very, very emotional. It was the second last award of the evening. The final award was the Hart Trophy. The Hart Trophy is presented annually to the most valuable player of the whole NHL for the whole season. Every year it is the last award that is presented because it is the most coveted of all the National Hockey League awards. This year there was a little more suspense going into this last award than normal because there were so many players that had such exceptional seasons. The winner of the award this year was somebody by the name of Taylor Hall who plays for the New Jersey Devils. And so he comes up and he is presented with this coveted award immediately following this very emotional tribute to the Humboldt Broncos and the award presented to their late coach. This is what Taylor Hall says as he steps to the podium to accept this most coveted award. Listen up. Um, I was super nervous until I just saw that humble tribute and uh, really puts everything into perspective for me. So um, kudos to you guys being here and thoughts are with you guys' families. Um, that's amazing stuff. Uh, not sure if you if you caught that. Um, he said this, and he was referring to the tribute, to the tragedy, to the emotions. He said uh, this puts it all into perspective. And I sit there and I listen to that and I think, hmm, really? What does? What puts it all into perspective? Why does death and trouble and sickness and sorrow and mourning put everything into perspective? How does this put everything into perspective? Allow that to spin around in your heads a little bit. We're going to come back to that. Allow it even to cause you a little bit of turmoil. Keep that question in your mind. 
So we've embarked on, uh, on a series of messages that we're planning to do over the summer months. I realize that not every one of you is going to be here every Sunday during the summer months, and, and I want to encourage you to continue to refer back to our website and to the podcast that we put up there. Uh, it'll allow you to kind of keep up with the series as we're going through it during the course uh, of the summer months. Uh, and we're going to do our best, those of us presenting are going to do our best to... Uh... Hang on one second are going to do our best to make it worthwhile. And so uh, head back there, catch up. The series that I'm referring to is, uh, is going to be on the Beatitudes. It's a title that we humans have given it. Uh, it's a series of statements that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 5 as he embarks on what we've also come to call the Sermon on the Mount. As far as we know, it's, it's kind of the first main significant, uh, complete sermon kind of that Jesus gives to his disciples, not just his 12 disciples, but all of those people that are beginning to follow him and latch on to, uh, to his teaching. And uh, it appears as though he preaches this sermon in an attempt uh, to further introduce the new kingdom, the new kingdom that he is bringing, a kingdom that he is going to, I think it's fair to say, is going to kind of Freak the people out because it is going to be so totally different from what they typically viewed as a kingdom. A kingdom that in their world needed to have physical parameters and physical actions and physical strength and in their case physical bloodlines. And Jesus comes with a clear message that I am bringing a different kind of kingdom. Uh, something that we have come to believe in, but I would contend something that we, not at all unlike his first listeners, are still very much struggling to latch onto and to grasp and to get a hold of. And so Jesus preached, or Jesse, yeah, Jesus preaches that sermon. Jesse preaches a few weeks ago, and he begins with the first beatitude, the first Blessed are you statement of Jesus, and it already is so completely contrary to what they would have expected. You go into the Old Testament, which was their scripture, and the understanding was very, very clear. The most blessed one is the wealthiest one, and the most righteous one, and the prettiest one, and the most powerful one. And of course, that only makes sense. And they obviously assume that if the Jewish nation will ever experience God's blessing again, it will come in the form of some type of physical power. And in the face of that assumption, Jesus steps forward and Jesus makes this first blessed are you statement that is completely upside down. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And you can see the faces of the people just drop. And their foreheads get all creased as they try and wrap their brain around. What in the world is Jesus saying? This makes no sense. And Jesus says, yes. Blessed are you when you are poor in spirit, 
When you understand that you are woefully insufficient, blessed are you when you understand that you need a crutch. I love the story that Jesse shared. For the benefit of those that were not here that morning, like me, Jesse shared the story of a preacher who was speaking to a university crowd. At the end of his talk, a student approached with a question, isn't Christianity just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? And the preacher answered and said, yes. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they need a crutch. That they can't make it on their own. And by the way, like Jesse said, if you are a cripple, then a crutch is a huge blessing. Blessed are you if you are a cripple. Blessed are you if you recognize that and you reach for the crutch that is being offered to you. It appears as though Jesus began with that beatitude because he was kind of giving the first rung on the ladder. And I encourage you, if you weren't here, to, to listen to Jesse's message on the podcast. Then, the second blessed are you statement of Jesus, the one that we want to take a look at this morning, and I hope this will help you make the connection with our introduction. It's found in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. Thank you very much for Barb, uh, Barb for reading it already for us, both in the NIV and in the message. Adds huge meaning when you sometimes read it in another translation. Thank you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now let's stop for a few moments with the, with the word blessed. The original use of the word makes it clear that blessing in this case is not an external thing. The word here, blessed, is very specifically an inward joy and happiness. And again, let me quote what Jesse said, who I am assuming was quoting somebody else when he said, just saying happy isn't actually enough. Because the Greek word when used in non-Christian or in pagan writings described a state of happiness and well-being that was set aside or reserved for gods themselves. And so it was a transcendent happiness, a supernatural happiness that we're talking about when we use this word blessed. So when Jesus says that we are blessed, he is speaking about a transformation in our state of being, in our own lives, on the inside, happy on the inside, and maybe we can keep going by saying content or at peace on the inside, more full and complete and whole on the inside, and from there I think we can make the jump to more complete or full or alive in our perspective of reality. And maybe we can agree with Taylor Hall that somehow being in a place of mourning puts everything in perspective. It's interesting, isn't it? By default, we think he steps to the podium and, and blessed are you when you win the heart trophy. This is the most coveted prize of thousands and thousands of young boys around the world, especially if I could only someday win the Hart Trophy, be the most valuable player in the whole National Hockey League. Wow! The most powerful, 
the best, the strongest, the biggest. No. Actually, it is that. Hurt and pain and suffering and mourning that puts it all into perspective. Blessed are you when you mourn because at that point you get life. And it's like Jesus is saying, you guys think that being the strongest and the biggest and the most glamorous and the most powerful kingdom in the world would make you happy. Actually, you guys don't understand. You want to know what would really make you happy? Full and complete and whole on the inside? Take this for example. Here's a few things. Number one, when you understand how insufficient you are, there's freedom in that. Huge freedom that leads to peace and contentment and hope. You get to begin hoping in and believing in and having faith in something or someone that is way bigger than you are. And you can simply put yourself at his mercy because you get it that you have nothing. There's no way of ever having what would be sufficient. Poor in spirit. And when you realize how insufficient the things in this world are, and you begin to look for things that really matter, and you begin to see things differently for what they really are, there is, in a strange way, happiness in that. So the whole package of mourning, it creates in us a certain level or degree of reality. Reality about real life. This is how life works here on earth. And it somehow puts things into perspective. And I guess this week we can thank Taylor Hall for speaking to that. That's good. But as good as it is, it does not yet fully capture the thought here. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Let me say it like this. There is something of God that only those who mourn can experience. There is something of God that only they who mourn can experience. I, I don't really even know exactly how to say it. God's sufficiency, God's fullness, God's completeness, God's care, God's sustenance. I remember back when I was in my mid-twenties, one of my friends lost his wife to breast cancer. They had a little three-year-old girl, and here he was in his mid-twenties, and he was a widower and a single dad, and it was crazy. I remember coming across a little card that I bought and gave him. It said, um, faith is what you hang on to. When there's nothing left to hang on to. That might be true, but I wonder if we could even paraphrase it to be a little more accurate by saying, faith hangs on to you 
Or maybe we should say, God hangs on to you when you have nothing left to keep hanging on with. God hangs on to you when you have nothing left to keep hanging on with. Some of you know that I lost two siblings when I was between the ages of 8 and 12. And I remember some bits and pieces of what my parents said during that journey. And I remember others who have been gracious enough to allow me to walk some of the journey of mourning together with them saying similar things. We really have no idea how to keep going. We really have no idea how we kept going. But somehow God kept us going. As a church family, we were so privileged and blessed. Back in January, February, we, when we did our series on hurt and hope and healing, to hear several of you share stories, your stories, of hurt and pain and suffering and grieving and loss and mourning. It's a huge blessing and a huge encouragement to all of us who are listening. And many of you said things something like, how can we go on? And yet somehow in the middle of that there was this calm assurance in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the turmoil, in the middle of the psychological distress that kept saying, God is good. As horrible as that time was, I, I never doubted that God is good. I remember visiting with my Aunt Betty, who had lost her husband just months before, and she was grieving and mourning. She is someone who gave. She gave all her life. Wherever she went, she was always giving. It was just in her DNA. Here she was a few months into her mourning journey, and she was lamenting the fact that I have nothing to give. I have nothing to give. And I believe God prompted me to ask, so can you trust that God's grace has still got you covered? I wonder if this is where blessed are those who mourn meets the new kingdom. Even there, God's grace will carry you. You are at a place where you have nothing to give. You are not in any kind of tower where you are the big helper, helping the down and out and the needy people around you. No, you have nothing to give. You are empty. You are beyond empty. But even way down there, God is there. And he shows up in a way, way down there, that he could not. No, actually, let me rephrase that. You grasp his showing up way down there 
in a way that you could never grasp God's showing up when you are way up here in life. That is reality in his kingdom. And I'm assuming it's why it speaks of God's love reaching us in the lowest places. I like uh, some of the terminology. Ephesians chapter 3 has something on that when it speaks about how long and wide and high and deep is God's love. And maybe the most amazing is what David says in Psalm 139. It's an amazing psalm of God's love and care and knowledge over you. In verse 8 of Psalm 139, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. It almost seems as though the translators are afraid to use the extremeness of the word that the original language uses. Because the Hebrew word is actually sheol, which means hell. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. I'm sure you've heard that line before. It was a living hell. I felt like I was going through hell. And verse 10 says, Even there your hand will guide me. I like this. Your right hand will hold me fast. There is something about experiencing that which cannot be described. It does not take away the hell. See, that's how we would expect that things should be done in our understanding of a powerful kingdom. A powerful kingdom will be physically powerful. And so a powerful kingdom will take away the hell, whatever it is for me. That's how we would understand it. That's how we would grasp it. That's how we would interpret a powerful kingdom to be. We simply understand and think in the physical. And so God, please remove this physical problem from me so that I don't have to experience this suffering anymore. But in the kingdom that God is speaking about, it is not taking the physical problem away, but it is about His hand holding you fast as you walk through your mourning. It's an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't make sense to the way that we think. It was a huge challenge for Jesus' listeners to really believe what he was saying. A kingdom like that? How can that even be called a kingdom? A kingdom that is not a dominating physical force, that is not made up of physical parameters and power, that is not even actually a physical presence, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that's where this gets crazy personal again, because I sometimes wonder if we know how to wrap our brain around such a kingdom. 
In many ways, it is still very hard for us to grasp. I was speaking with someone this past week, and he was sharing that he was sharing his faith with someone. Way to go! By inviting them to church. Now, I'm a pastor, and I believe in church, but, but God's kingdom is not what we today know as the church. Much of our world views are, are, are still views it that way. It's one of the things, John and Connie, I'm pumped that you're here to, this morning. It's one of the things that, that we were so blessed with by the way that you seem to so consciously be aware in your outreach in Guadalajara with your friends. You were intentionally trying to make very sure that your friends would understand that the physical building and a physical group of people is not the real dynamic of God's kingdom. It came from a background where, where it was so common and a, such a traditional Catholic background where it was all about the physical, earthly church kingdom. It's a strong thing in the Latin culture. I dare say it's just as strong in the culture in the North American Christian church culture. It's so much about the church that I go to. Even in our Mennonite background, my Mennonite background, it's, it's so common and it's so crazy because it's the very truth that Menno Simon so radically rebelled against. God's kingdom is about something totally different than the physical establishment of a building or a group of people or a system, a group of laws or a ways of doing it. That's in all likelihood also why Jesus made it so clear in the terminology that he used as he preached in the New Testament. It's interesting because Jesus never, and I mentioned this to you several weeks ago, Jesus never uses the terminology or the verb of human beings that we are to build the kingdom. It is always God or Jesus bringing the kingdom and we are invited to come and join. We are invited to come close. But Jesus is always the one bringing the kingdom. It is not human beings building the kingdom or advancing the kingdom or causing it to happen. It's not our job. Our job is to come close to the kingdom that Jesus is in the business of bringing. Here's how that relates to our message this morning. Is there room in our, quote-unquote, kingdom for those who mourn? Is there room in the church for those who mourn? See, if it is about a physical kingdom, then probably not. Because those who mourn will create a bit of a shadow over the mood and the atmosphere that we have when we get together. Because we want to we wanna have hype and we want to have excitement and we want to build our momentum here. And if we want only joy and excitement and praise. And God has blessed me so much by protecting me and giving me a job and a raise and a promotion. And a championship and a scholarship and health. If, if that is what we want to promote here and we want to build momentum in that direction here. Well, then morning doesn't fit then mourning would be a detriment to what we are trying to accomplish and build here and get going here. Then mourning would be a huge setback to the building of our kingdom here. 
But if we get it, or at least we are desperately trying to get it, that this is God's kingdom and that reality, all of our reality fits inside his kingdom. No, no, it doesn't just fit, but it's welcome inside that kingdom because that's exactly what God specializes in using to build his kingdom is reality, which includes mourning and emotions and tough times and hell. A living hell. Jesus was pretty clear that he came for the sick, not for the healthy. And Paul finally got it also that God's grace is sufficient because it is in our weakness that God's power can be made perfect. And it is in our weakness that God's power can actually rest on us. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Some of you will remember the tough journey that Pastor Jesse and his family went through back at Christmas when they were grieving the tragic death of his brother. How he courageously shared with us the reality of their journey through pain and suffering and grief and mourning. You may remember that he helped us to understand we get to do something here on earth that we will never be able to do in heaven. Here on this earth, in our weakness and pain and sorrow and grieving and mourning, we get to worship God out of our pain and our incompleteness. As we sit with hands figuratively outstretched, completely empty, with nothing to give, that is worship. And we need that in the church. And in that worship, there is comfort. I can't explain it any better. Because this truth can probably only be fully known by experience. Amen.